on, my memory's failing me. Dr. Lloyd had an issue, a family issue and he texted me early this week and asked me if he could have this week to uh, deal with an issue with his family. So we look forward to Dr. Lloyd next week. And John graciously agreed to do a one-week study with us based on 2 Corinthians. And uh, I'm sure... I'm sure it's not a fill-in. No, you're fine. I'm sure it's not a fill-in. I'm sure it was meant to be this way. And I want to personally thank John for stepping up enthusiastically as he always does to teach. If you will, let's open in prayer. Father God, even in the cold, when our senses are numbed and our thinking is skewed, we can look to you and say thanks. Thank you for this day and thank you for this opportunity to study your word. Help us to know that the Christmas season is not just a season, but it is every day. And that your life with us is our life. As you are in us and with us at all times. Even when we're cold and we can't feel that warmth, we know you're there. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, good morning. How does that sound? How does this sound? Fine. Good? Yeah, uh, I, I'm a little worried. My friend Cindy Friley always comes to class, and she's supposed to be here today, and I was going to tell a joke on her, but she's not here to hear the joke, so I'll tell it anyways. And, and you know, she works, has worked for... Oh, she's coming. Yeah. Well, I'll tell it anyway. She's on the steps. She can hear me probably. Well, anyway, Cindy has worked for a substitute, as a substitute teacher for many years. So uh, what she told me that she did was go into the class, introduce herself. Hi, my name is John. And tell the students to work quietly at the desk and come up forward if they need any help. So I thought that's what I'd tell you guys today. <laughs> well, that's right. Right, right, right. Well, yeah, this, this uh, one class session, I was happy to come and see you and spend time and study. Started out was going to be on 2 Corinthians 5. Actually, it evolved uh, as the week went on to something a little bit different. And uh, I'm, I'm sorry for the text. Can you read that? Is it, light, is it readable? I just need to know because I'll have to read it to you. But you actually have a handout that traces the PowerPoint. And there's only a few, there's not very many PowerPoint slides. The rest of them are bigger. But this, of course, just says why Christmas is every day and how each of us can become a little Mary. So um, that's what we're going to study together. Now, uh, who is into the church calendar? Who loves the church calendar? Who knows where we're at in the season, the, however you want to put it, the lectionary season. Ah. Yes, 
This is the first Sunday of Epiphany. By the way, I wouldn't have known it either had I not looked it up, so I'm not trying to be superior here. Yes, I, well, good. This first Sunday. Okay, three. So actually, you know, when we use the term Advent, and, and I learned this also. I don't know if you guys remember. Some of you may have been in the class, but about seven years ago, we had a course here on Advent. Did anybody take that course? Uh, do you, Do you remember anything? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, you know, I learned a lot through that course. But one thing I learned was, you know, I always had a, a narrowed view of Advent as what? Christmas. But it's really this whole uh, season. And uh, as far as I understand, today is actually also the last day of Advent. Is this correct? It's the first day of Epiphany and the, next, and the last Sunday of Advent. So we're still technically, if you follow the church calendar, remembering um, a lot of the things that are central to Christmas. Now, if you're not a, uh, if you, of course, the Russians will be celebrating Christmas uh, coming up because their Christmas is different. Every, all these church calendars are different. But what I want you to see is we have a sort of reduced Christmas to what? The 25th, right? The big day. And um, I, I think what we're going to learn today is uh, a larger New Testament viewpoint, I hope so. So, <coughs> having said all of that, and I'm sorry I'm standing so far away from you right now, but let's talk for a minute. Christmas question number one. How is Jesus living before becoming a human? And this really is a open-ended question. With I mean, God in heaven. With God in heaven. Okay, we'll start there. Uh, uh, Susan says he was. That means you're implying what? You're God as I am. God as I am. So you're saying Jesus was experiencing deity. Yes. Okay. Anybody else? Before becoming Christmas is the celebration of what? The incarnation. So we're asking the question: well, What was going on before this big event? Uh, and anyone else want to share anything? Okay, that's what Susan's point. He was the great I am. I don't know what happened to that mic, but we're going to have to get one so we can all hear. He, he, was, he was God. So, okay, was his name Jesus at that point? Now, of course, understanding that God's omniscient, of course, God and Jesus knew that eventually when he became a human, that he would take the human name Jesus. But what I'm asking is, back then, would that have been a way that they would have? No, because Jesus is... Okay, and, and, and he got named Jesus because it was bound up with what? What's the name mean? Yeshua in, in uh, Hebrew, uh, or what we would call Joshua. Yahweh is my Savior. Salvation, Yahweh saves. So that's why uh, Jesus got named, and Jesus is the Anglis, or the Greek form of it, Asus, right? And it comes in English, Jesus, but Yeshua. 
God saves us. Okay, so we're all happy with this. What was Jesus doing before he became a human? And we want to leave it at, what did he look like? (laughs) Well, who said this? Just spirit. No body? Whatever kind of body they have in heaven. (laughs) Well, now let's think theologically. We've studied, uh, in fact, last December I was here, and we did a series called God Is, and one of the is the endings was God is what? God is light, God is love, God is spirit. So when the Bible says God is spirit, God is not corporeal. God doesn't have a body, right? So prior to the incarnation, which means to take on flesh, Jesus then would have been pure spirit, pure, boundless, eternal, cosmic spirit. That's that's wild to think about, isn't it? But still separate. I mean, God, Jesus, Holy Spirit. Yeah, and all these language, all the words, we stumble over them so much because it's so hard to talk accurately. And even... I don't even know if you can a lot of times, but when you said still separate, not separate because deity is deity. You can't um, stop being God. But what does she mean? Not separate, but... Three and one. I mean, it's the Trinity. Yeah, yeah, right. Those are, but what kind of mode of existence did Jesus enjoy in relationship to the Father. Did they have a relationship? Was Jesus a, as we would call a personality in the sense of being a person, a being? Did Jesus know what we now call the Father? Yes, because you, you, you know this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, with God. Actually, in Greek, it, it suggests face-to-face with God. And the word was God. So, not separate, but distinct in the sense that they each have their own personality. And, of course, then, uh, that was mind-blowing enough for the early Christians to get their heads around, trying to deal with uh, who is Jesus? Do you remember what they started out? Well, when they first met him at the beginning of the incarnation, what was he? Not that, not that that's low, but what did they call him? When they first met him. When they first met the master. Well, not when he was a baby, but... <laughs> after he came forth. What did they call him most of the time? Teacher! Rabboni! Rabbi, Rebbe. Then they got to the place where they was, they were like, "Oh, wait a second. What's the next level?" What did they start thinking he might be? Ah, this guy's got to be a prophet. He he reminds us of the stories we've read in the Bible. He's like a prophet. The next level. Those of you who were on Israel on that Israel trip should know this. What happened up, up at Caesarea Philippi? What did Peter finally 
today's Epiphany Sunday. Peter had an epiphany. What did he call Jesus? You are... Uh, you're getting warm. The Messiah. Messiah. Rebbe. We all love um, Rebbe John. But none of you think he's Messiah, right? I mean, we respect teachers. But then you go to, well, prophet. Then you go to Messiah. And the Gospel of John goes even further. It ends at the end with a man named Thomas doing what? Falling down on his knees before Jesus and saying what? You guys are breaking my heart. (laughs) My Lord and my God. And he wasn't saying my God like a valley girl. He was confessing Jesus as his deity. Okay, so you see that progression. Now, that's just Christian theology. So, what was Jesus, how was Jesus living? He was in spirit form, sharing the eternality of God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Second Christmas question, how was Jesus living the first 30 years of his life? Uh, Well, yes, traditionally the term carpenter in Greek, it's techne, where we get technology. He was a technon. He was a, a, a trained um, construction builder, worker. So that's, that's, that's what he did, I, whether it was act only carpentry or not. But he was a technon. He was a construction dude. Do you guys ever do that? Constructions? Can you see Jesus out there hammering a sledge? No? no? Yeah, right. Uh, yes, right, right, right. But what I'm asking you to think about is, what, well, how was, what was he doing the first 30 years of his earthly life? After he became a human, he's not at the right hand of God any longer, right? So what's... Yeah. Until he came forward. So, but for long periods of time, just like you, <laughs> slinging a sledge. He was also uh, there's no question about the fact that unless you want to pull the Jesus card out of your back pocket and fabricate something, well, he knew all this stuff because he was God, which we've thrown that away years ago, right? Because we learned from Luke, uh, the last verse in uh, Luke chapter 2. It says, and he grew in Jesus. Wisdom and knowledge and in, in stature and in favor with God and humans. So if you grow in knowledge, then that cannot be a a description that you would apply to God. Why not? Because God, by definition, is omniscient. So this is not describing Jesus in his deity. It's describing Jesus in what? His humanity, his incarnation. So the master grew in knowledge, which means that he would have had to learn To, to read. And uh, uh, we don't have a chalkboard today, so 
I can't show you a cool thing. You know, what's the, um, what's the uh, Hebrew word for daddy? Abba, Abba, Av, A-B. Aleph, Beit. So what's Aleph, Beit sound like? Aleph, Beit. What's it sound like? Aleph, Beit. Alphabet? Right. Alpha, Beit. First two letters of the Hebrew uh, uh, language. Alpha, A, B, Beit, Av, you pronounce the BV, and that's how you say daddy. So you have to imagine, just like that little Muppet that you have running around here, what are the first things that you teach your little kids to say? What did you, dada, papa? If you're a Jew, you say, say abba, av, say av. And you have to imagine Jesus sitting there with his little um, sand uh, uh, projecto set, <laughs> ancient projecto set, and he'd write the letters because he, judge, because you got to learn how to read because I mean, yeah, if you're going to think Jewish, I mean, <coughs> Jews believed in universal literacy for everybody in their community uh, thousands of years ago because it's just logic. If God gives you <coughs> a, a revelation encoded in a book, then it's just logic that you do what? Learn, read it, and even before you can read it, you gotta learn how to read. So the master learned how to read, he learned, and he learned and learned and learned. Very learned person, obviously because the learned um, religious leaders in Jerusalem at a certain point in the Gospel of John look at each other in amazement and they say, where does this guy get this learning having not studied? And the implication is with us. We've never seen this guy up in the Jerusalem academies. How does he know all these things? Well, of course, earlier they, they, they um, when, when, when it was emerging, as my friend Jeff was talking about, when Jesus was starting to emerge, one of the things that they said in trying to deal with this guy, they were like, Who, what is this? We know this guy's dad. He's just a construction, he's just a construction worker. We know them. Yeah, it would be like one of your, one of your boys down there at the, at the construction site would all of a sudden start manifesting miracles and claiming to be sent from God, it would, it would, what would people do? <laughs> yeah, it was, it was really something. So, um, but I mean, anybody else want to tackle this? What was he doing? What was, how was he living? How was he living? In a family. He was in a family. <coughs> He's just doing doing the Jewish homeboy thing up there in, in uh, uh, Nazareth. They, um, how can I say this and not be taken seriously but try to make the point? Hillbilly heaven. <laughs> By the way, did you see this new book this guy came out with? He's so cool. It's called Hillbilly Elegy. He grew up in Appalachia. He grew up in Ohio. You should look it up. It's called Hillbilly Elegy. And he explains what the Appalachian 
mindset is. It's, it's very cool. But that's where Jesus grew up, in a place like Appalachia. And he comes down to Jerusalem, and they say, Wait, what? The construction worker, he seems to know the Bible very well. How can that be possible? Okay, here's the, here's the next question now. <laughs> Stay with me. Now, you have these texts in front of you, and we're going to do a little study together. Let's get the question down. You have a chart there with all these texts. And here's the question. How was Jesus, li- Jesus living before and after being anointed with the Holy Spirit and, Jeff, manifesting as the Messiah? Okay, well, we, well, now we want to find out what was he like right before and then what happened after he was anointed? And you can see that there are a number of passages here and we have the opportunity to study together. So this table does Luke 135, 321, uh, 4A, 41A, 41B, boy, you guys got 414 and Dan and Cindy, 416 through 19. Look up the passage. I'll do the one that I didn't give you because I'll explain later. Uh, Take three minutes, look up the passage, and what I want you to do is find out what that text tells you. Well, no, I did that. Oh, okay. <laughs> what I mean is just the first part of the verse. Okay, right. Um, did I give you the right verse? Or, um, no, 414. They're all from Luke. I'm sorry. one did you get? Just the second part of the verse, yeah. I put that in there. This, no, the second part, the second clause in the verse. Sorry to be so picky, but yeah, there's actually, there's two things in that text. You got it? You, you got it? You got it? What's the uh, question? The answer, the question is, how was Jesus living before and right after being anointed? So what does your text say? What was his relationship to the Holy Spirit? What does that text tell you? Were we supposed to read beyond 35? Uh, No, actually, uh, unless I have... And keep reading and keep implying. And <coughs> what's the implication? That the Holy Spirit's going to do what? Conceive Jesus. The Holy Spirit conceived 
Jesus. gets the word, she says, well, uh, I know enough about uh, barnyard behavior to know that that's not going to happen because I'm a virgin. So she understood reproduction. And it wasn't like a hostile question. It was simply explained to me how something that's never been seen before can happen. And so then she gets this answer. Well, God's going to do it inside of you. But you don't accept those words. Well, we'll see at the end of the class. I mean, it's stunning. I mean, she's my little hero. No. Yes. Not at all. Which is the way kind of that she usually gets back. Okay, my friends, let's share together. Uh, uh, who's got the first one? Oh, yeah, this table over here. And we... We need the mic, and, and these, they, they had a big theological one. So if the rest of you look at 135 now together with them, Luke 135. And um, I don't know if any of you want to talk, but what did you basically learn? Uh, this is the text that talks about the angel saying to Mary in response to her logical question, how is it possible that I'm going to have a baby? And what was, what was her reasoning? I'm a, yeah, this she knows reproduction. She's seen those chickens out there. <laughs> she saw those bulls. She knew she was a farm girl. So it's not, she's not asking a hostile question. She's just saying, how could that possibly be since that's not how reproduction takes place? Then the angel says, <laughs> <You're> <laughs> by the Holy Spirit. <laughs> You're gonna. This is gonna happen. You're gonna. The the child inside of you is gonna be conceived by the Holy Spirit. Now, what did you just learn about Jesus? His father. His father is the Holy Spirit. He, I guess you could say his father is the Holy Spirit, or his, the creative power of God, the person of the Holy Spirit, uh, in some way supernaturally caused Mary's egg to be impregnated. So actually he was conceived by, not just a woman, but Spirit. by the Holy Spirit. Now I want you to keep that in your mind because you're going to see how that's pertinent to your lives in a little bit. So that's how he starts. He starts out with a very unusual birth. He's conceived by God. He's God, and, but he's living as a human. He doesn't use his deity for the first 30 years of his life. And then we come up to this famous scene. What's the next passage? Uh, was it 4-1-A? No, three, two, oh, 3-2. I'm so sorry. 3-21 three, tw three, and 22. Who's got that? All right. If you could read it for us and the rest of when, you look along. So when, when all the people were bap being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. What happens to him here? 
identified as the son of the Holy Spirit. And how is, how is he identified as the son? What's the, what happens? What's the? A dove and a, a voice. A dove and a voice, and this is, he's being what? Anointed. He, uh, you could almost use the Christian term christened. He's being appointed and anointed formally in the presence of everybody as what? Son of God. Um, and also the Messiah. The Son of God and Messiah are like kind of... Now, Judge Haas, here we go. Jesus starts out saying, uh, Aleph, Beit, learns how to read, grows 30 years of his life, apparently normal, busting up concrete, laying foundations, <laughs> building houses and furniture, um, uh, nothing spectacular at all. Then we get right here at age 30, and what happens? He has an, an, an encounter with the Holy Spirit that's called being anointed. Now, understand this. He's still deity, right? All this time? But how come nothing cool is happening other than just living a cool, nice life? I'm, I'm happy that you brought it up. Dr. Smith, he's saying, aren't I throwing away the time he went into the temple and stunned everybody with his knowledge? Not at all. What, what age does a Jewish kid get bar mitzvah at? At 12, they're supposed to have the Torah memorized. Seriously. They would have completely comprehensively digested the entire Bible by the age of 12 in that era. Did you know this? You're not allowed to talk to the doctors of the law until when they cite the very beginning of a verse. You have to know where that verse is in the Bible because they're not going to take the time to read the whole text to you. You're supposed to have known it already so that then you can learn and talk about what does it mean. We don't have time to go back and read it to you. So this is normative for most Jewish kids. Then the rabbis do what? They scour and search for what they call the little geniuses. And they find some of these Jewish kids who are like off the charts IQ and they recruit them to, do, to be what? Well, of course to be rabbis because in their worldview it's the most important thing. Some of these rabbis are so staggeringly learned, you would think it was supernatural. So when I look at Jesus at 12 in, in, the, um, in the temple, from looking at it from a cultural, maybe Dr. Lloyd will wax on about this. Looking at it from a cultural, historical point of view, what we simply are seeing is what? An extremely talented 12-year-old a genius, perhaps, who's walking in the ways of the Torah and has uh, demonstrably uh, mastered them and, and learned it to such an extent that he's able to ask penetrating questions of teachers of the law. Any of you have uh, been teachers here? Have you ever had a genius?
I mean, I, I have had, I've had some geniuses in my class. I've had kids that were genius. You could tell they're geniuses. They're asking questions that are like, it's a phenomenal thing to find a genius. Jesus, uh, Jesus was a human genius. That's how I explain that. Because other than that, I mean, he goes up there, gets into a philosophical discussion with the doctors of the law, and then he goes back to Nazareth. What does it say? And he went back to Nazareth and what? was submissive or obedient to his parents. So then he lives the next 18 years, what? Just being a cool Jew. <laughs> He's just a hard-hat, cool Jew. Then, he gets anointed. Next verse, 4-1-A. He's now full of the Holy Spirit. Next one, 4-1-B. He's led by the Spirit. What's happening to him? Where did he get lead, led, by the way? Where did he get led, yes. Out into the wilderness to be tempted. Now, I made this life easier for you, but see the next three verses, 4-4, uh, 4 4, four, eight, four twelve. Just to save time, because I want to make sure we get through. These are the three texts that indicate what Jesus did when he got tempted. Do you remember what he did when he got tempted? He, qu he quoted the scripture that was the precise antidote to the temptation. God's antidote to the temptation. So Dr. Smith, looking at it in medical terms, Satan pops a... Uh, some sort of a uh, pathogen into Jesus' head, and Jesus does what? Gives the antidote to it, boom. Does that three times. No argument, quoting the scripture. And I'm gonna cheat here, because when we go over to the right-hand side later on, on the other chart, you're gonna see, what does the Bible call, or what, do the what does the scriptures actually say, or metaphorically call the, the scriptures in some Ways it uses a term, a uh, a metaphorical term, uh, almost a term of violence. Oh. The, the sword of what? The sword of truth. No, it's the sword of the spirit. You're going to see this in a little bit. So now, what I'm trying to show you is what Jesus gets anointed. He gets filled. He gets led into combat, and how does he win? By using the sword of the Spirit. You see that? Okay, next one. 414. What table did that? All right, what does that tell us about the Holy Spirit and Jesus? That he was touched by the Spirit. But touched, but what, what's the actual um, phraseology that's used? Oh, power, empowered. The Greek word is dunamis, dynamite. So he goes, he gets anointed, he's filled, he's led, he goes into the wilderness, he's feasting on God's uh, words and being tempted. When he comes out of that temptation, how does he come out of it? 
really, really, he's just radiating with God's supernatural power. You would think coming out of 40 days in the desert, uh, he would be completely decrepit, but he comes out, actually, uh, he might have been physically beat up, but he comes out spiritually um, glowing, radiant. And now the last one, 4.16 through 19. Now, this is the first thing that he did. He can't, goes back to his hometown. And who did this one? Okay. And what, what did, uh, read it for us. This one, this one needs to be read. Yeah, I got it. Very important event in Jesus' life. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. All right, now let's unpack this. And Dr. Lloyd next week would be a good one to ask about this as well. Where is he? His hometown, Hillbilly Heaven. He rolls into the synagogue. It, notice what the text says. He stood up to read. Who would be so presumptuous to do that? What do you mean he stood up to read? What is that? He's one of the local rabbis. So he's come back to his hometown. He's back to say hi to everybody. He's got cachet. He's got authority. He's got some uh, commu community cachet here. So he stands up to read. Well, of course they give him the scroll. He's one of, the, one of our rabbis. Yeah, but I mean, why would he in particular do it rather than the Rebbe that was there? Yes, they would stand up to read. Why did he in particular? He's been gone for how many days now? He's been gone for a couple months. Now he rolls back into his hometown, shows up in the synagogue, and stand, they defer to him. Here, here's the text. Now he gets the scroll. What's he do? Notice carefully. Read randomly. He knows where to turn. And Judge Haas, if you've ever seen a Jewish scroll, no text markers, no verse divisions, nothing. Stone cold lines of text done mathematically and precisely, the same amount of letters and characters on each page, page after page after page, to turn to Isaiah. Oh, by the way, where did he read this from? I, almost, I, I, I let you, I slipped it out. He turns to Isaiah 61. Well, if I say to you, turn to Isaiah 61, it's a piece of cake because somebody already went out and numbered it all for you. <laughs> well, I know we all still struggle, but I'm just trying to get, if you have a, a scroll like this big and you've got to plop it up on the reader's thing and then you've got to use the rollers, this isn't a codex, you got to know that text so well 
I mean, you can't imagine Jesus up there saying, I know this text around here somewhere. I just... Not at all. Piece of cake. That's correct, because the prophets were kept separately, not the Torah scroll. If you've ever seen a Torah scroll, they're like this big, and they are heavy. You, you really do have to work them. But Isaiah, by the way, Isaiah, you can go and see it in Jerusalem. You saw it. Oh, no, you didn't. Did you see the Isaiah scroll when we were in uh, Israel? At the um, house of the scroll, the, the big long scroll? That is 61 feet long unrolled. That's how, how long Isaiah is. How long is 61 feet? From here to the end of the wall, maybe? That's how long Isaiah. So here you've got the master, no text divisions, no numbers, hand him the scroll. <laughs> finds that text, and that text is one of the great messianic passages of the Jewish Bible in Isaiah. It starts out what? The spirit the Ruach of Yahweh has anointed me. What's he, why is he reading that text? That, he's, and, but we didn't read the whole thing. When he gets done reading the whole thing, he sits down and he says, uh, today this has been fulfilled. I mean, what a trip. Can you imagine this? Well, you know, this anointing concept, it's an ancient Jewish idea. It starts out symbolically that every time they appointed a leader, they would pour some uh, sacred goo and oil on their head. Do you remember this? Do you remember when Samuel is looking for the next king of Israel, when Saul has disobeyed and he goes down all the, 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 uh, uh, the sons of... Um, I'm having a, uh, a mental disturbance here. <laughs> Whatever his name was, David's father. And he gets down to little David, and God says, that's the one. What did Samuel do? He takes out this oil and pours it on his head. All the prophets had oil. All the kings had oil pointed on. What was it symbolic of? It's God's um, covering, God's power. Okay? So it, it, you want to use acknowledgement in the ultimate sense of the word. This is like being acknowledged as this is the leader. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. So, where are we? He's in the synagogue. And I want you to look now at what did he pull out of that text and and... The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and he has what? Anointed me to do what? What does he say? Herald the good news of the kingdom. That's evangelism, proclamation, and teaching. That's um, spiritual liberation, particularly from demonic forces and anything evil that would hinder a human being. Uh, supernatural miracles, uh, not just spiritual sight, physical sight. What else? 
and to announce the, the year of the Lord, which is Jubilee, which in Jewish culture is the 50th year in which every debt gets canceled. Now just think about this, what it would be like to live this way. In this system, you didn't really own land. You rented it. Every tribe had a certain allotment. You could trade within the 50 years. Here, you can have my 100-acre farm. There's, it's 40 years until Jubilee. You have 40 years of crops. But at the end of Jubilee, what happens? The monopoly game is over. All the land goes back to the original stakeholders. All debts are canceled. Plus, it's a two-year Sabbath. The 49th year is no work. The 50th year is no work. It's a two-year celebration of complete release and social uh, reconciliation. We could try it in America. Judge Oz? (laughs) Well, when Jesus says, I'm here to pronounce the year of the Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor, in, in spiritual terms, what is he saying? This is the new era. All debts are going to be canceled. And of course, from his point of view, he means what? Oh, sins. I'm here to bring a spiritual revolution. All your sins are going to be taken away. You can come back to God. This is the time of uh, the Messiah. All right, so how do you do all that stuff? The power of the Holy Spirit. Now, next chart. The question is, why Christmas is every day? Now, let's do the same thing. You take 1 John 1, 3 through 9. Let me get one of these. Each group will look up a passage. 2 Corinthians 1, 21 through 22. Ephesians 5, 18. Galatians 5.18, Ephesians 6.17, Cindy, uh, if everybody could turn over now to 1 John 1, 3 through 9, and we'll have this group tell us what they think, 3, 9, what did I say, wrong, I'm sorry, 1 John 3, 9, get us our scroll, Somebody needs to read it. Yes, read it out. Read it for the rest of the group so they can see it too, hear it too. Those who have been born of God do not sin because God's seed abides in them. They cannot sin because they have been born of God. And now, of course, this is an intriguing passage and needs to be deconstructed big time. Um, I'll just tell you flat out, he does not mean ever sin. He can't mean that because in the first chapter he tells us if anyone sins, you can confess your sins and have your sins forgiven. So he's not implying that Christians don't sin. What he's saying is is that if you have had this certain experience with God that he's describing, which we're going to see in a minute, you can't keep brazenly living in sin you won't do it. You can't do it. Because why? Because you've been born of God. 
And what does he say God put inside of you? What's the term he uses? Why does he use that term, God's seed? Guess what it is in Greek? Guess what that word is in Greek? Ready to get shocked? Sperma. That makes sense as a doctor, doesn't it? Because sperma is the Greek word for seed. Now, why would God do that? Why would God suggest that to us? That, in effect, your soul is like what? No, no. Yes! Yes! Our souls are sort of like Guys, you're going to have to get in touch with your feminine side here. Our souls are sort of like a woman's egg. What's the seed? Well, how did Jesus get conceived? And so the Spirit comes to us and does what? Causes us to come alive in Christ and have Christ live inside of us. A new life. A new life. It's Jesus in us, not and we we come alive with him then. Is it making sense? Some of you are looking at me like I'm a cult leader. <laughs> What's the next one? 2 Corinthians 1 21 through 22. Who's who did that? Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. What did he just tell you that God did for you as a Christian? God did what? God anointed you. What did we learn about Jesus? Jesus was anointed. Now, do you know and understand that the anointing that was put on Jesus is exactly the same anointing that gets put on you? Do you know this? Or do you think, well, God would never do that because I'm not worthy, I'm not as good as Jesus, so obviously I would get not as, I wouldn't get the same anointing. That's the way our normal flesh would think. No way. But God comes to us in the New Testament and says, way. I'm putting the fullness of the Spirit and the fullness of the anointing on you the same as I did my son Jesus when he was in his human form. That's shocking, isn't it? But it makes sense because Dr. Smith, the whole thing gets started out in the Christian life. What does God put inside the Christian when they become a Christian? The Spirit. More or less or little uh, than Jesus. The same as the fullness of God gets put inside of you. Then when you get anointed, it's the same anointing that God did on Jesus. Next one, Ephesians 5.18. What does this text tell us? What did we learn about Jesus? After he was anointed, he let himself 
He yielded himself. He said, okay, take over. Take over my life. Now God comes to you and I and says what? You can have that same experience that Jesus did. You can be filled with the Spirit like Jesus was if you yield too. And he, of course, why does he contrast this? He's, don't get blitzed on wine. Why does he make that juxtaposition? When you're out of control, when you're blitzed on wine. Right. So anything that would cause you to be like blitzed. He's not saying don't drink. And there's right. a lot of people in this room are very grateful for that. He didn't say don't drink. And we know this is true because how much, how much of the stuff did the master make at Cana? Something like 75 gallons. And I wonder if they asked him, if, I wonder if anybody got blitzed that day. And then somebody would have gone up to Jesus and said, you, you caused that person to fall into sin. You made too much wine. <laughs> so he couldn't be talking about drinking wine. He's talking about what? giving yourself over to a substance or a thing so that you're no longer in control of yourself. That's what he's talking about. And he said and suggesting instead of doing that, you should give yourself over to Holy the Holy Spirit who will fill you and, as it were, metaphorically, get you high, but not in a way that you're out of control. Oh, of course you can. You do have control where you don't when you're drunk. That's right. Like, wouldn't it be cool if you went out and got blitzed, went to Times Square, <clears throat> got one of those hoses that the kids use, power chug three beers, get completely stoned out of your head, and then say, okay, stop, and you become totally sober again. Wouldn't that be cool? No, not really, but it would be interesting to... Uh, but that's exactly right. You can be in the spirit and God can be calling you to do something and you can, as a human being, you can do what? You say, uh, I don't want to do that. Yes, you can. Uh, what's the last one? Uh, well, not the last one. Acts 1-8. Quick, quick, quick before we run out of time. You got it? Oh, you got a question? Hold on. Hold your question. Let's get this last one. Acts 1-8. Led by the Spirit. No, no that's not Acts. That's Acts 1-8. You got it. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. When Jesus came out of the wilderness, how did he come out? Empowered by the Holy Spirit. Same Greek word. Dunamis. What does he say about the Christian? When the Holy Spirit is working and you're allowing the Holy Spirit to work in your life, what's going to happen? The power of God's going to work in and through you. Yes, sir. I don't see any of them that look like this what they're describing uh, that you know, the lights have come on and now I'm a spiritual genius uh, I, I, don't, I don't see that why um, 
Well, uh, we'll just cancel uh, Dr. Lloyd. And <laughs> no, we can't. I, I want to give you a, an honest answer, but we only have a little bit of time. In the Bible, the depiction of what can happen for a Christian starts out as seed fertilized, a soul fertilized. We just saw that. What's the next level that the Bible describes Christians as? Uh, pablum, who eats pablum? These are infants. So we know what a Christian infant is. Is somebody just newly born to the Christian faith? You give them pablum, smashed nanners, milk. What's the next level of the Christian life? Is anyone? It's, 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 it's called the, the war between the flesh and the spirit and the, the carnal fleshly Christian. It's kind of like the teenage Christian. It's when you're, you're, the Holy Spirit's inside of you telling you, oh, you should do this for God. You should do yield to God. And your flesh is saying what? I don't think so. <laughs> but that doesn't happen to any of you in here, right? Well, no, wait a second. That war of the Spirit is the norm. That is what God says every Christian's going to go through because what I've tried to teach you today is that God wants to recapitulate or do over in your life everything he did in Jesus' life. Now, I admit, Jesus got with the program. And thank God for that, right? Because by the time he's 30, he's ready to do what? I'll do anything you want. But I want to just remind you of something that happened at the end of his life. When it came down to it, he's standing in that garden, and God says, for, for real, son, I want you to give yourself over and get crucified. Now, what does the master say? Is there some other way of doing this? And absolutely that's what he said. Why? Because Jesus was, he was human, he was rational, and this is something that's beyond reason. This is, this is a mystery of God, that what God's asking him to do. Surrender my whole, let me be killed? Jesus loved life. So what God does for you and me is the same thing he did for Jesus. He takes us a little seed through infancy, teaches us how to read, lets us go through our adolescence and all of that, comes to us and says, look, I want to do inside of you the same thing I did inside of Jesus. And then we say, what? I'm trying. <laughs> I'm trying. <laughs> like Yoda said, no try, do. <laughs> right? You know that? You're not supposed to try because guess what? We can't do it. What you actually have to do, Dr. Smith and John David Guy, I'm speaking to myself, you got to get there and you say, I can't do this. What did we just learn today? All this stuff that God wants to do inside of us. It, it's not from us. So you'll never get there the reason that we don't get there or when we don't get there is because we're trying to do something that we can't do. The only thing you can do is what? And, and I'm going to end with this. I know we're just a minute late, 
but I wanted you to see this too because I think it's so cool. <clears throat> what did Mary say to God? Even though what God was proposing to her was, I won't call it irrational, but I'll call it transrational. It's beyond. What did she say to him? <laughs> Whatever you say, let it be done. That is the coolest thing you can say to God. Even when you don't understand that what God wants to do, you can say with Mary, okay, do whatever you want to do. Do what you say you want to do. And Dr. Smith, if you can do that, if you can say that to God, then God will do things that are beyond our capacity to understand. I believe that's true. Yes, sir. Well, yes, of course, but I think most people, if I could be so presumptuous, put thy will be done at the end of their prayers because they don't want to sound presumptuous, right? So it's always that polite way to say to God, hey, I don't want to bother you. I mean, if it's, if it's okay with you, if it's your will, please. But that's a different kind of thing because now God's telling us, just like he told Jesus, what, what is my will for you? When God, when, God, when God comes to us, what does he say? This is my will for you. What I, I want to do inside of you the same thing I did inside of Jesus. And when that, then you don't have to say, if it be your will. Th what then you have to say to that kind of a proposal is what? Be it done the way you say it should be done. Thy will be done in that sense, yes. Hey, God bless you, and thank you for coming, and have a great course with Dr. Lloyd.